Well, hey, Grace Chapel, great to be with you all today. You know, every generation of parents looks for advice on how to raise children and build a home. My parents' generation, the so-called builder generation, uh, looked to a pediatrician named Dr. Spock. <laughs> Not that Dr. Spock. This Dr. Spock, the mild-mannered pediatrician whose book Baby and Child Care became quickly one of the best-selling books in history. So if you don't like how the boomers turned out, you can blame it on Dr. Spock. A next generation of parents uh, turned to a plain-spoken psychologist named Dr. James Dobson for advice. Now, back in the 70s, before Dr. Dobson was more politically entangled as he is today, in those days, his book, Dare to Discipline, became a, sold millions of copies, and his film series, Focus on the Family, was shown in virtually every church across the country. In the 80s and 90s, parents turned to celebrity experts for advice, like Oprah and Dr. Phil, for help in building homes and relationships. Now, today's generation of parents with the rise of social media is more likely to turn to peers for advice and counsel rather than to experts. The so-called mommy blog is one of the most sought-after destinations on the internet. Someone estimates there are about 5 million mommy blogs out there already with names like Rookie Moms, Scary Mommy, Modern Mom, The Mommyhood Chronicles, and Mommy Poppins. Now, the point of all this is that parenthood is challenging. And not just parenthood. Marriage, family, extended family, budgeting, home improvements. Managing a household with all its relationships and responsibilities is one of the most complex and demanding assignments on the planet. And we know that the home really is the building block of any society. And we know that what happens at home can change the trajectory of a person's life, whatever age or stage of life they find themselves in. And so it's natural for us at times to, to look for advice, for counsel, for wisdom, on how to, how to bring health and vitality and order to our homes. And September is one of those times. Now, I know it's not September yet. It's still August, and we're going to enjoy every minute of it. But we know it's coming, don't we? Back to school, back to work, back to church, back to everyday life in all of its craziness. But right now, that year to come is a clean slate. We have a chance to start again, to do some things differently this year than last year. And so this clean slate series is designed to help us think about how we want the year to come to unfold. So last week, we talked about a clean slate at school, learning. Next week, we'll talk about a clean slate for our working lives, whatever your work happens to be. And today, we're going to talk about a clean slate at home. And once again, it's going to be relevant for everyone, all of us, no matter what age or stage of life or status we find ourselves in. We all have a roof over our head. We have a home to manage. We all have family relationships and people that we're connected to. We all have a calendar that we're going to be filling up with activities and events and commitments. But at this point, it's all a clean slate. So what can we do this year to help our homes become more life-giving and more God-honoring than they might have been last year? 
So for some help, we're going to turn to a short little passage we find in the book of Colossians this morning. I'm going to offer some foundational principles for building a home, ordering a home. And then I'm going to invite Karen to, to come and join me here, and we're going to share some practical lessons we've kind of learned along the way here uh, for putting these things into practice. So let's begin in the Scripture. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, Paul's letter found in the New Testament, and we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Well, as it turns out, people in the ancient world were just as desperate for help in managing their homes as we are today. And they often turned to something called household codes for help and for wisdom. Now, these household codes were kind of the mommy blog of the ancient world. They were collections of practical wisdom offered up by teachers or philosophers or, or spiritual leaders in the community. And they were common in Greek and Roman and even in Jewish culture. And at several points in Scripture, we find what appear to be early Christian versions of these household codes. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 2, and right here in Colossians 3. They are simple, practical directives that can be easily remembered, easily passed on, and easily put into practice. Practical directives that help bring health and vitality and order to our everyday lives at home. Now, these Christian codes that we find, as helpful as they are, also can raise some questions for us, especially as we try to apply them to our modern 21st century world. For instance, what does Paul have in mind when he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands? It doesn't sound very contemporary to us. And what about the apparent acceptance of slavery, as we find here in this passage? Now, we've talked at length about these things and some other messages. That's really not the primary focus today, but I think we'll offer some help in understanding these things as we go along here. What I'm after here for a few minutes is the big picture. What are some foundational values upon which we can bring some order to our lives at home and to our Christian homes in particular. So I'm going to offer three of them and then have Karen come and join me for some practical teaching. So the first value I want to point us to is I want us to notice that these directives are corrective in nature. Now the word I really want to get to is redemptive, but corrective kind of helps us get to what I'm after here. What I want us to see is that Paul is not offering comprehensive teaching on everything there is to say about marriage and family and parenting and home economics. He's not trying to cover the whole landscape here. 
He is addressing very specific challenges and offering corrective teaching, pointing people in better directions. So as we understand the culture of the ancient world, it was highly hierarchical and patriarchal. Men ruled the world and husbands ruled the house. That's just the way it was. Women had very few rights, had very little status and clout in society, and women bore the brunt of domestic responsibilities. Some things never change, apparently. And so because of this setting, wives were tempted to be resentful towards their husbands and to offer begrudging service to their needs and their interests and to even offer subtle resistance to their husbands. And so Paul calls on Christian wives to willingly, joyfully serve their husbands by putting their husbands' needs and interests and desires ahead of their own. That word submission, which we stumble over, doesn't mean subjugation, and it doesn't mean obedience. To submit is to freely and deliberately choose to put someone else first, their needs, interests, and desires ahead of your own. So that's what he speaks to wives. The husbands, who in this setting tended to domineer their wives and take them for granted as homemakers and as child bearers, and in in this Greek culture, in the Roman culture, husbands and fathers were often distant, stingy with their affection, and often looked outside the marriage for their romantic interests. And so Paul calls on Christian husbands to actually love their wives to cherish them, to care for them, as Christ does the church, he says in the parallel passage in Ephesians. So again, you see Paul's offering corrective teaching. He's addressing a specific problem. He's not saying everything there is to say about Christian marriage. Certainly, wives should also love their husbands, and certainly husbands should also serve their wives. Paul's just speaking to a particular issue here. Well, the same corrective or redemptive intent shows up in the other relationships, too. Talk about children and parents. Now, no surprise, but turns out children in the ancient world didn't like being told to eat their broccoli or be home by 10 any more than today's children like to be told those things. But Paul reminds them that life will go better for everyone if they'll obey their parents. And since fathers tended to be distant and remote and harsh, Paul calls on Christian fathers to be sensitive and encouraging to their children. Again, we see this corrective intent when it comes to slaves and masters. Now, slaves and servants were really considered members of the household for the most part in that culture. But because they were slaves or servants, they would be tempted to do as little as possible for their masters. And masters would be tempted to take advantage of and even exploit their workers because they could. And so Paul calls on Christian slaves and masters to distinguish themselves, calls on Christian slaves to work hard for their masters, and calls on Christian masters to be fair and respectful towards their workers. Now understand, Paul is not offering a defense of slavery as an institution. He's simply addressing the reality of the day and pointing slaves and masters and society in a better direction. 
It's redemptive. So that's the first concept, first foundational value. A second foundational value here is that the relationships we find here are marked by equality. What's striking about this code compared to others of the day is that all of these members, of every member of the household, is assigned equal value. Every one of them, husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves, masters, they're all addressed specifically and directly. Each one is treated with dignity. Each one is given agency. Each one is recognized as a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ, capable of glorifying him and being about his work in this world, even women, even children, even slaves. This was remarkable for the time. Now, Paul's simply making practical a truth he had declared earlier in the letter when he wrote, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In a similar passage in Galatians, Paul affirms the equality of men and women in Christ. So from our 21st century perspective, when we read about submission, when we read about slaves and masters, these things can sound restrictive and oppressive to us. From our century looking back, for a first century person reader, these things were liberating, they were empowering, they were revolutionary in their impact. So let me take a minute and kind of bring you back to a chart we introduced a few weeks ago earlier this summer, if you happen to be here, a chart that kind of helps us understand how we read some of these difficult texts and topics that we find in the Scripture, uh, especially sometimes in the, in the Older Testament. We made a simple, simple chart. This is time, human history. And if Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the Garden of Eden... Okay, life as it was meant to be, as God designed it. And if Genesis 3 gives us the fall of humanity, which ruins everything, and if Revelation 22 gives us the new heaven and earth, which is God's ultimate design for all things to be as they were, as they were meant to be, it means human history, God has been at work all through human history to gradually move us toward his good and eternal purposes, gradually revealing his will and his character as we're able to understand it, and gradually advancing his kingdom values as we're able to actually implement them. It's happened over time. And we could put the time of Jesus perhaps right here, marking a significant change in the upward direction. So when we come to a passage like this in Colossians and we read... Wives, submit to your husbands. When we look back at that from our 21st century perspective, that sounds pretty restrictive and oppressive. When you look at it from this direction, it looks liberating and empowering. From Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was to obey her husband. This is a step in the right direction, but it's still not ultimately what God has in mind, which is for husbands and wives and men and women to be equal partners overseeing all of creation. Same thing is true we read about slaves and masters. It's very troubling for us that Paul doesn't condemn slavery right in that moment. His human history and culture wasn't quite ready to do that at this point in time. But what Paul says to slaves and masters here about respect and dignity is a great advancement over the way things were and it's pointing us towards new and better things until one day when Christ followers understand that teaching in its fullness it will lead Christ followers to lead the charge for the abolition of slavery in the Western world. 
So we call all of this the redemptive movement of Scripture, that God is at work in Christ and through his church to move humanity in better directions, forward and upward. So that brings just a little bit of perspective to these passages which sometimes can seem a little bit dated and obsolete. But what I'd like us to see here is that this emphasis that Paul has on equality and mutuality, this was countercultural, this was revolutionary. The final value I'll call to your attention here is that these instructions are Christ-centered. And of course, that set them apart from all the other household codes of the day and from most of the codes that we find in our culture today. Paul begins this whole section by saying, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Which means the motivation behind this code isn't just to have a happier, healthier home, even though that's where it will generally lead us. It's to honor Christ and to point people towards him. The goal of our lives at home isn't to please ourselves. It's not to please our parents. It's not to please our peers. It's not to please our followers on Instagram. It's to please the Lord, who is our heavenly Father and has given us this home to experience and extend his love. It also means, a Christ-centered home, that we have not only the motivation to live this way, but the actual ability to live this way. Because let's admit it, sacrificial love, joyful submission, willing service, those things don't come easily to most of us. But when we have Christ alive in our hearts, when we have his example to follow, when we have his spirit within us and his word in front of us and his people around us, we're fine, we're able to actually live in these kinds of ways towards each other which means the way to, to live this kind of a life, to have healthy, healthy happy, Christ-honoring honoring homes, isn't just about trying harder or reading more blogs or finding some new parenting hack or some new technological device, as helpful as any of those things might be. The best thing we can do for our homes is to invite the presence of Christ. Because the more fully Christ is present in our hearts and in our relationships and in our home, we find the inspiration and the ability to actually live in these ways. So this household code, which bore some similarities to codes of its day and bears some similarities to wisdom we might find today, is distinctively Christian because it's redemptive, moving us in better directions. It's based on an equality and a mutuality in Christ and because it's resting on the presence and power of Christ in our lives. So it provides us with a, a basis for ordering our homes. But now, how do you do that practically? Well, I'm going to ask Karen to come join me at this part, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the things we've learned along the way and some of the practices we've gained after about 39 years now of uh, this whole thing called home building. So about three of those years were spent as a married couple with no children. About 30 or so years meant having kids at home in one way or another, and in recent years, we've been doing the empty nest and the grandparenting uh, thing. So here's a picture of the Wilkerson crew, just so uh, you can catch some names and faces and, and that sort of thing. So Karen, will kind of fill you in. Yeah, so I'll introduce our family. Um, Kelly, our oldest, is on the far left, standing next to her husband, Isom. 
Next to Isom is our son, Brendan, number two, with his wife, Ellen, in front of him. And then the tall one is Mark, our third one, and his wife, Ellie, is in front of him. And then on the far right is our son, Daniel, and his bride of one year, Kendall. And all the cute kids in blue are our grandkids. And of course, Brian and I are there in the middle. <laughs> um, it was a very busy house growing up. It's even busier now when 17 of us are all in my house together. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom for the first 15 years. And when my youngest went to first grade, I went back to teaching. So I've been an early childhood educator ever since. And we, we just want to say from the outset here that as we share these thoughts, that we are humbled and grateful for the home that God has granted to us by his grace. We're deeply grateful for many of you who have invested in the lives of our kids as Sunday school teachers, as youth workers, as people who just pray for us and for our family. And we're going to try to share mostly positive things today, but understand, there were plenty of mistakes and many of these things we learned the hard way as we made our way through. So, but let's share a few of the practices that we either settled on or stumbled into as we tried to build a healthy, happy home and uh, find some order. So Karen's going to get us started. So the phrase ordering your home life can sound a little daunting. Order sounds an awful lot like to-do lists and discipline and boring routines, none of which sound very fun. And certainly there are plenty of mundane tasks all of us need to do, whether we're married or single, with kids or without kids, just to get our lives in a reasonable order. We all have to work to pay our bills. We have to clean our homes and our clothes occasionally. We have to find something to eat. And those routines can feel a little tiresome sometimes. But they don't always have to be boring or unpleasant. What Brian and I have discovered along the way is that when we added some simple, repeatable, fun activities to our normal routines, it just brought a more joyful rhythm to our family life. Now, many of you do this um, already, and you might not even notice. I wonder how many of you grab a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks before you get in the car, for either for work or for a carpool. It doesn't change the drive, but it certainly adds a little pleasantness along the way. I'm a school teacher, and when I get off of school, every day I have a cup of tea and a cookie as I sit at home. It doesn't change the fact that I'm absolutely exhausted, but it gives me something to look forward to all day when school is over. And those things that we always do to make our lives a little happier, a little better, um, can really change things. Think about some of the positive always statements that you might make about your family's life. We always swim at Walden Pond in the summer. My family always goes to the Cape for vacation. We always go to Grandma's for Thanksgiving. My family really loves to play cards. Those always events help to define our families and bring a sense of belonging and rhythm to our years. They're kind of the Velcro that keeps our families stuck together. And so what Brian and I would like to share with you this morning is some of the Velcro that we have used to connect our family. Some of the simple, predictable, and fun routines or practices that we've added to our family life over the years that took us out of ruts of routine and injected some joyful rhythms into our family life. So the first practice for ordering life at home is, surprise, surprise, prioritize church. Now, I know you're saying you're a pastor's family. You have no choice but to prioritize church, and there's some truth in that. But honestly, having 
raise our own kids and watch many others, we believe one of the most important things a family can do for bringing order at home is to, is to kind of put church first, and we believe anyone can do that. So the way that we started to prioritize church certainly was just Sunday morning church attendance, which meant taking advantage of everything the church had to offer on a Sunday morning. Our kids always went to Sunday school, and then they would sit next to me during the service while Brian preached. If I was volunteering in the nursery or teaching a Sunday school class, they often would come with me. It wasn't that we couldn't teach them the Bible ourselves. We certainly could do that. But we wanted them to make connections with God's people. We wanted them to feel like their church was their family and that they had friends and grown-ups who liked them and wanted to see them. When our boys were in elementary school, our town basketball program was held on Sunday mornings and only Sunday mornings. And it was a tough decision because our boys like to play basketball. But we decided to prioritize church over basketball for my sake as well as theirs. So none of our boys became professional basketball players. <laughs> but they still all attend church on Sunday morning, even as young adults. And I believe it was because we made a routine and a habit of going to church together on Sunday mornings. And the bagels after church didn't hurt. So beyond Sunday, inevitably there are midweek kinds of things, both as for kids and, and youth group when they got to be that age of middle school and high school. And everyone understood that part of the routine was going to be making it to youth group during the week. Now, our kids played sports, they joined clubs, they had jobs, they got good grades, but they still managed to have an evening or two a week that they could make time for youth group. Now, the good news is we've had great student ministry here at Grace, and so most of the time they really wanted to go. And because they had been developing friendships in all those years of Sunday school and church, it was easy to slide on into middle school and high school. But it was just a basic understanding, this is what we do as a family. We worship on Sundays and we connect with our church during the week. And that we're grateful that we're able to keep that up. Um, so they all did fine in school. They got into good colleges. Um, and they played lots of intramural basketball at school and have championship t-shirts to prove it. So they got to play ball. A second, pra a second practice uh, we'll simply call protecting family time. What we mean by that is we wanted to be sure as we looked at our week and our month and our year that there were going to be times, non-negotiable times, that we were going to connect as a family. Well, as, as you can imagine, there was plenty of negotiating going on, but at least we started by getting those things on the calendar. So our family life was as crazy as anybody else's who has kids. We did sports and scouts and clubs and school. Um, for a number of years, I had a huge whiteboard on the, on the wall of my kitchen uh, with a weekly schedule on it. Who was going where, who was picking up. It was insane. It was like the launching of the fleet every single week, getting four kids in all the places they needed to be. So we wanted to find some predictable times that we could connect as a family. We tried to eat breakfast together when possible, but we really made an effort to all be together for dinner um, most nights with no technology allowed. I've mentioned before the power of food. Um, scientists tell us that some of our most important memories uh, are around smells and tastes. And so making certain meals can add some fun to the regular routine. When our kids were in school, we had frozen waffles every Tuesday, and we had pancakes every Saturday. Just made it easier for them to get up, get up in the morning knowing there was syrup ahead. Um, simple, tasty tweaks that added to the fun. 
Brian's day off in those days was always on Tuesday, and so we tried to make Tuesday afternoon, once they get off the school bus, a fun time for us as a family. We always had donuts as a snack, and then we'd head off to do something fun as a family. Uh, maybe we'd skate at the ice um, pond, maybe we'd go swimming, maybe we would go as a family to a playground. We always took hikes every Columbus Day for many, many years. And sometimes those long walks turned into long talks about big and small things. Vacations were also important to us. We spent 25 years making the pilgrimage out to the Midwest to visit my family. One of my sons dubbed it the long trip to paradise. But for our family, it was something to look forward to every summer, and it helped us to stay connected with our extended family. So at this stage of life, with kids out of the house and scattered everywhere, protecting family time means that most of our discretionary time and money is invested in seeing our kids. So most of our vacation time and, and, and money we spend not perhaps buying furniture or remodeling kitchen, perhaps, but wanting to buy plane tickets or a place at Camp of the Woods or whatever so the family can be together. We've just decided to do that. And at this stage of life, as empty nesters, we don't have to compete with kids at home for each other's attention, so that's a little easier. But we still look forward to dinner every, every evening. We ask Alexa to play some music, and we catch up with each other on the day, and if we can, try to take a walk together uh, after dinner and go out on a Friday night with each other. Now, I will say, as, as I look back on our early years as a young married couple, no kids, I failed miserably at protecting family time. I was a hyperactive youth pastor in an over-programmed church, and no sense of boundaries around kids and activities and church, and we had a very rough first year. But I'm grateful Karen had the courage to have a hard conversation or two or three or four with me as we made our way through that year, and uh, years two and three and the rest have gone a lot better, although we still have to have those hard conversations from time to time to get it right. So our third practice to ordering our homes was to play whenever we could. It's easy to have some fun routines to your everyday, um, especially with birthdays and holidays that come around on a regular basis. In our house, one of the special things for birthdays was you got to choose the dinner and you got to choose the dessert. Um, one of our traditions is we always opened up one um, Christmas package on Christmas Eve. But we tried to celebrate the other holidays too, just to make the everyday a little more special. There were always Valentine-shaped cookies on Valentine's Day. There was always a pack of green gum next to your cereal bowl on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, at the end of the school year, we like to celebrate by doing something special. One year, we did the duck boats down in Boston. And we always had kind of a final barbecue at the end of the summer, just to relive the summer memories and to think about what the um, months ahead looked like. Uh, I have bins in the basement full of decorations for different holidays, uh, not just Christmas, but I have fall decorations, Thanksgiving decorations, St. Patrick's Day decorations, Valentine's decorations, and all of those little pieces just add a little sparkle to the decor. So it turns a dreary month like March into a green festival because the whole house is full of green. And those little touches are simple, they're repeatable, and they just bring some fun and joy to your routine family life. They really did, kind of decorating a house like that, just gave us a sense of progress as we kind of made our way through the year. We already talked about trying to have some fun every day off. The kids would look forward to that as much as I did, that we'd find something fun to do. But in addition, every once in a while, I would wake them up on a school morning and say, we're going skiing. 
and we'd skip school and go skiing. Didn't happen nearly as often as they probably wish it did, or as I think I remember doing it, but we did do that on some occasions. Karen always worked really hard at making summertimes rich with activities and trips, and well, we made our way to the beach and walks to Bedford Farms and things like that as well. So many of the examples we've talked about obviously involve uh, families because that's what we were, but certainly they can apply to our extended families as well. You can be the uncle who takes the kids to the Red Sox game. You can be the aunt who slips a crisp 20 into the birthday card. Did you say Red Sox game? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. We would do Yankees, but that's a whole other story there. Uh, you can be the sibling who calls once a week. You could be the grandparent who takes uh, kids to uh, Kids Week or to Camp of the Woods. You can be the volunteer who serves in uh, student ministry or Kids Town. There's lots of simple, repeatable, fun ways that you can make a difference in your family and in someone else's family. Uh, the final practice is to pray pur purposefully. I know that sounds like a very predictable thing for the pastor's family to say, but I can tell you, prayer and devotions is just as challenging in a pastor's family as it is in any other. And to be honest, we didn't do well with this. We tried all kinds of things at family devotions, and they didn't usually go well. But we did find ways to pray together uh, over the years. So for us, the easiest times to pray with our kids were at mealtimes and at bedtimes. So we took turns at mealtimes. Um, everybody got a chance to pray for a different meal, gave them a chance to practice praying out loud and learning how to do that. And then, of course, bedtime prayers were just a sweet time to talk through their day and pray for them. And um, I will tell you, as a grandparent, it's been a real blessing to see my own kids doing that very same thing with their kids. We also prayed together um, in seasons of either decision or distress. 20 years ago when we were making our decision whether to come to Grace Chapel or not, we gathered together as a family and we prayed about that. A number of years ago when our granddaughter was in the NICU, we prayed together as a family via text just to support one another. A few times a year when Brian and I get a chance to go away overnight together, we set aside an hour or so to pray very carefully and specifically for each child, each grandchild, each one of our siblings, our parents, and friends and family that we love. We pray for about our work, we pray about church, we just pray about everything. Like many mothers and grandmothers, I'm famous for waking up in the middle of the night and fretting, and so I try to remember to pray then as well. So prayer is simple, it's repeatable, and it can be life-changing in a family. I do find it interesting that Paul's next line after this teaching on the family is this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. One way or another, family will bring you to your knees. Because we realize we need wisdom and patience and strength beyond ourselves. And we know that no matter what we do, ultimately, every member of our family has to make their own decisions about life and faith. And so sometimes the, the only thing we can do and the best thing we can do is to put them into God's hands. And I know many of us are, are still waiting for prayers for family members to be answered. But as I said, we are humbled and grateful that we're able to tell a generally very positive and happy story about family life. And we focused on the good things here, but you can be sure they came with many mistakes, many heartaches, many hard conversations even as we were preparing this, we thought of things we wish we could have, should have done a little bit differently.
But somehow, by God's grace, all the kids are gainfully employed. <laughs> They're following Jesus. They've chosen good friends and partners. And only one of them is still on our cell phone plan. <laughs> so we're almost there, okay? Now, you don't have to do your family the way we did ours. Every family has to work it out. But the simple idea is that there are ways to build on this household code. And I realize that talking about family can often stir up feelings of pain and disappointment. And maybe some of you are feeling that these days. Maybe you're in a time of, of special difficulty as a family or in relationships. So let me leave you with these words of Paul uh, earlier in his letter. He says, therefore, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other. Whatever grievances you may have against one another and all the, over all these virtues, put on love. So it could be that your season of home life right now calls for an extra measure of patience or forgiveness or sacrificial love. Christ can help you with that. Your church can help you with that. And sometimes the best thing we can do for our families is to pray for them and put them in God's hands. And so that's what we'd like to do as we close here today. I'd like to offer a prayer for every household represented here across all of our campuses today. Last week we prayed for students and teachers. Today I'd like to pray for homes. So I'm going to ask everyone across all of our campuses just to stand right here where you are so I can offer a prayer for every household represented today. And if you happen to be sitting with a family member or a few of them or a significant other and you'd like to kind of join hands as I pray, then you certainly feel free to do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, from whom every family on earth derives its name, we're grateful that we can call you Father today and know that we are members of your family, sons and daughters of God, and brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for that. As we do every week, we're thankful for your word, which speaks so clearly and practically and powerfully into our lives, words of healing and hope. Lord, I pray for each home represented here today. I pray that this might be a year of deep connection, a year of laughter, a year of servanthood, a year of growth and faith, a year of love. Lord, I pray that you would give to each household and every family member wisdom, strength, courage, as we settle into our routines, as we fill our calendars with activities, that we would not just let life happen to us, but that we would prayerfully and intentionally find those simple, repeatable ways to make space for you to bring joy and love, goodness and faith into our homes. We thank you that we're not alone as we do this. We have each other. We have your word and your spirit. We have the Lord Jesus Christ as our example and our strength. May you do something new and good and lasting in our homes this year. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.